everybody. Welcome to ARE Live. I'm Mark Tier, the founder of Black Spectacles. Today I'm with uh, Mike Newman, and we're going to be reviewing our mock exam for the ARE 5.0 practice management exam. Uh, this exam, as we were talking about earlier, Mike, is mostly pretty new exam content, stuff that 4.0 didn't totally cover. So the topics we're going to be covering here may very well be new. And, uh, and I think the mock exam that we put together is going to help folks you know, get a sense of some of the key concepts that are covered. Yeah, most of the material will be similar to programming, planning, and practice and some of the other stuff that was covered. But the fact that they have a particular exam just in practice management is definitely a new way of thinking about it. And so there's sort of a new lens on a lot of the yeah, uh, same old information. Yeah. Um, so yeah, before we get started, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, where we'll be focusing on the really the second ARE 5.0 exam, which is project management. Uh, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register. And during the broadcast, just like today, you'll have a chance to ask questions to the group and of Mike. Um, and as you guys probably know, here at Black Spectacles, you know, we've built a comprehensive ARE 4 and 5 exam curricula you know, that you can utilize, you know, to prepare for the exams. I often like to remind folks that if you'd like your boss to pay for your Black Spectacles membership, be sure to tell them about our firm licenses, which are really sort of designed for any sort of size of firm, whether you have 10 folks at your firm or 10,000 people. Uh, we have a, a variety of different licenses um, and lots of different tools and so forth that make that work really well. So just visit blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about that. Um, and then in, um, at the end of today's episode, we're actually going to be tracking the um, everyone's answers to the mock exam. Um, it looked like almost almost half of the folks who who registered um, submitted answers. So thank you for doing that. Pretty overwhelming response, I would say. Um, and what we're going to do is uh, we'll choose somebody from all all the folks who submitted their answers, and they'll win a free one month ARE prep Black Spectacle subscription. And we'll be tracking all the answers. And for everyone who gets every single answer right you'll get a free Black Spectacles t-shirt. So stay tuned for that too. As I mentioned, uh, Mike Newman is with us. If you don't know Mike, he's an adjunct professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. He's also the founder of Shed Studio, and he's uh, the instructor for Black Spectacles online ARE exam prep curriculum, which if you haven't already checked it out, um, head over to blackspectacles.com to watch any of the free um, exam prep uh, tutorials for the courses. And tonight, we'll be taking questions using the GoToWebinar question box as well as on, any, uh, as on Twitter using the ARE Live podcast hashtag. But first, I'd like to hand it over to Mr. Newman. All right. Uh, we're going to dive right in. Uh, sorry about the uh, short delay there. Uh, and as Mark said in the intro, that uh, practice management is, uh, you know, it's essentially the same material. It's just, uh, as we were saying, a, a sort of different lens on how you look at that material. And so this is really uh, coming from a, a NCARB and AIA uh, put together a, a big, long survey a couple of years ago and talked to literally a thousand people around the country uh, and asked them kind of, you know, what what was the exam not uh, uh, helping with? And they got this overwhelming response uh, They you know, got lots of responses all over the over the map on, on all the other topics. But they got this overwhelming response that people weren't feeling like um, that they were being encouraged to learn how to just stop and start a start a practice. How do you actually make a, a business work? And so the questions that we're going to be starting to talk about today are just sort of about uh, kind of issues that you would need to know in order to uh, to start a practice. Uh, 
So kind of where you want to, you know, what kind of direction you want the practice to go in, uh, how you're going to get uh, work, uh, how you're going to respond to uh, requests from potential clients, uh, you know, just kind of the all the different sort of aspects of that. And we'll just touch on a few of them uh, for tonight because it's a short process here. But uh, you can kind of see that the, the idea here is really just uh, anything that would give you an opportunity to really think about, right, how do you make a, uh, an architectural practice uh, start? Like, what would you what would you need to know? So let's just sort of dive in and kind of run through a few of these questions. Uh, the first one we're going to look at here, uh, a couple of these are a little wordy, so uh, apologies, um, but uh, let's just dive right into this first one. A potential roofing material supplier suggests a different roofing material than the architect had been considering and is an inducement to get them to try something new, is willing to provide the architect a 10% return after the material has been procured by the GC. The architect should do what? We have a couple different possibilities here. First one is uh, inform the building code official uh, as to their plans to use the newer material. B is discuss with the GC whether the material meets the needs of the project. C is use the initial material only. D is review the materials for adherence to the needs of the project uh, and uh, the project budget and propose a material that best meets the needs without accepting financial return. So. All right, A, inform the building code official uh, that you're gonna be using the newer material. That's a reasonable answer. Uh, if you are in fact going to be using the newer material, A would certainly be a reasonable thing to do. Uh, B, discuss the with the GC whether the material meets the needs of the project. Well, that's also a reasonable thing to do. Uh, the GC probably has some uh, opinions about it. Uh, it would be useful to know about pricing and about a bunch of other aspects uh, that the GC would have uh, their finger on. So B, also fairly reasonable. So, so far, we're uh, not really putting anything out, uh, uh, out of possibility. C, use the initial material. Well, that's certainly doable. There's nothing wrong with sticking with your initial game plan. So that also is sort of plausible. But there's one key aspect to what's being asked in the question uh, that's going to make all of those uh, kind of moot. Uh, and when we look at D, uh, what we're going to realize is that D is the only one that hits on that one particular aspect. So uh, review the two materials for adherence uh, to the needs of the project and the project budget. So it's mentioning both the needs of the project, i.e. the uh, durability, the health, safety and welfare issues, all of those kinds of issues, but also the project budget. Uh, but mostly it's going to say uh, at the end here, uh, so you choose the one that makes the most sense without accepting a financial return. This is a key thing. D is absolutely the correct answer. Um, there are many different, even related uh, 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 professions that allow you to sort of play a little fast and loose with uh, when you're procuring materials about who's paying for what and whether you get a little kickback or not. But the way this is written, this is clearly a kickback to the architect for choosing a particular roofing material. And if you're an interior decorator and you uh, get uh, to sort of 
bill at the list price, but uh, get a special discount. And so you're making a little extra money. Like nobody's going to throw you in jail because you're an interior decorator. It has a different relationship to the idea of profession. It's uh, There's not the same expected level of concern about the health, safety, and welfare of the public. Uh, it's also... Uh, it depends on the contract and a few of the different situations, but certain contractors uh, have the ability to be able to do things like that. But an architect can never uh, accept a kickback in this kind of situation. There is no uh, sort of ethical way to do that. And that's because an architect is considered a professional and has a certain ethical relationship. And that ethical relationship, it would be not reasonable to uh ask a, uh, an architect to uh, put themselves in the position to be choosing between making more money or protecting the health, safety, and welfare of the public. So like in this particular example, roofing material, like if it's a EPDM versus a PVC or something, you know, there's probably not a, a lot of uh, health, safety, and welfare worries in that situation. It's probably more just durability or appropriateness to uh, to the job at hand and obviously the budget. But you can't let it start. You can't uh, just because this particular one isn't an example where the uh, health, safety and welfare of the public hasn't been uh, uh, compromised. You, you just can't let it start. So the rules will always say that the architects cannot take money directly in that way, because it is just an ethical problem that has to do uh, with that protection. And uh, just to, just as a reference, you may have mentioned this, but the um, kind of the, I guess the standard uh, for this is articulated, correct me if I'm wrong, in the AIA handbook for professional practice, right? That's kind of where we're getting this from? Yeah, is there's a whole ethical construct um, that you can actually find right on the AIA website, mm -hmm. um, but That's it's also point, right. uh, it's also pretty clearly put into the handbook of professional practice, uh, and it's a pretty extensive thing. There's there's a lot of different topics that show up on there. This is one of many. Uh, there's also issues about uh, how to compete with each other, how to uh, uh, you know what what it means to be a professional, all of that. There is a kind of interesting relationship between the AIA in this situation and the actual uh, uh, sort of governing body that licenses each of the individual candidates uh, and that the licensure is actually done by state. So every, each state has their own licensing board and they're the ones who uh, have the actual control over the licensure. Uh, but every one of the ones in the United States will have something that's very, very similar uh, specific on this topic, it's very similar, but pretty much will adopt uh, the entire ethical sort of construct of uh, that shows up in the AIA documents. So that one is a is a little sort of cheat one. It's really just trying to lull you with a bunch of information. Uh, and the thing you're supposed to notice is the fact that it's uh, talking about the return after the material was procured. That's clearly a kickback. You should know that. You should be proud to know that very, very, very few people got this wrong. Yes, and, good job. Uh, um, and, and just to put it into context, uh, like we're saying, this is really about kind of running a firm. This is part of what the point of uh, questions like this would be, first of all, to see if you know that, but it's also just trying to reinforce 
that there are codes of conduct, there is an ethical structure that you should be aware of, uh, that if you're working for a firm and you know, you're doing uh, CD sets or uh, 3D models in BIM or something like that, there's sort of not, you're not really expected to understand all of the code of conduct issues and, and how the contracts are gonna relate to uh, ethical issues and things like that. But if you're starting a practice, you absolutely are expected uh, to understand what those issues are. And so uh, this is one of those that where the exam is partly in place here to test your knowledge on these things. And it's also partly in place to sort of put a flag in front of you to say, hey, don't forget, this is an issue you need to, to know about in order to run your firm. Okay. Look at the second one. Okay, a problem with the project has come up. There is a dispute between the contractor and the owner. Which of the following are possible ways that the dispute might be adjudicated? So this is, uh, this is one of those ones uh, where it's not just a choose one out of the four. This is uh, where you choose multiples. Um, and so there are multiple correct answers here. So, in a situation where there's a dispute and the dispute needs to be sort of figured out and somebody has to decide uh, who's the winner of, of the dispute, uh, there are a couple of very simple, straightforward uh, answers to this situation. And then there's a couple other ones that are a little bit, uh, a little looser. So let's sort of run through the uh, possibilities. Um, so the first one, uh, if anybody answered A, um, it's, uh, that's a little bit of a cheat on my part. Um, I actually, when I was putting these together, I did a typo, uh, and then I realized that it was actually kind of funny, uh, so I left it in. Uh, so A says meditation, um, and <laughs> meditation is probably a great way to uh, go through uh, dispute resolution. Um, I would recommend it for everybody, but uh, that is not gonna be a possible answer on the NCARB exam. Uh, but uh, mediation absolutely is. Uh, so G is certainly correct. Uh, mediation is gonna be the relatively low scale uh, effort. It's gonna be a sort of the simplest way uh, in terms of when you have a third party reviewer come in, it's somebody that both parties can uh, agree to. And when we talk about dispute resolution in this way, we're usually talking about a dispute between the owner and the contractor, though it could be any number of other players as well. But if it doesn't say specifically, you should assume that it's between the owner and the contractor. And so a mediation would be a situation where the contractor maybe chooses three different people to be a mediator and the owner then chooses one of them so that there, it's somebody that both parties agree to, they have enough sort of separation, standalone separation, but it's a relatively simple and low-key process. Uh, the mediators, they tend to be people who are like retired architects or retired contractors, so they have a lot of information uh, already. They already know how things work, uh, and now they're gonna go through the documents and figure out what happened, and then they're going to, uh, uh, sort of after they talk to both parties, uh, do something similar to a depositions, uh, they're then gonna make a decision. And that decision is sometimes binding, although not usually. Usually, if the parties don't agree to what happens with the mediation, it can then jump up to the next level. 
And the next level would either be arbitration or litigation. And uh, it depends on the contract and a few other issues, but arbitration and litigation are the two next level uh, dispute resolution setups. Litigation is obviously when you go to court. Uh, arbitration is a lower level than going to court, but more intensive than doing mediation. So I essentially have something akin to a judge. Uh, in some jurisdictions, they actually call them judges. In others, they call them other arbiters and a few other terminology points. Um, but arbitration is where you might have either a single person or a panel of three. Uh, and it's a much more laborious process than mediation. Uh, but litigation is going to be even more and is going to cost a lot more in terms of time and money. So uh, mediation you might be able to get done uh, in a month. Um, arbitration, maybe it takes uh, five, six months, something like that. Litigation is going to be years because it just takes a long time to get onto the uh, uh, calendar and you have a lot of lawyers involved. So it's much more expensive. So the reason that mediation and arbitration exist is so that you don't have to uh, get to litigation. Uh, and some contracts will, will mandate only arbitration, some will mandate mediation and then litigation. You know, there's a bunch of different ways it can happen, but those three are the sort of the main three in terms of dispute resolution. But we're looking for four. So then the question comes, which, uh, which, ones are, are, which one is the other one? We already got rid of meditation, although, like I said, I like that one. Uh, if we look at C, um, so I'm going to cross out A. If we look at C, C is REPC. That's actually a real estate purchase contract. It has nothing to do with it. Um, real estate purchase contracts are often the thing that goes into uh, litigation uh, because that's just the nature of them. Uh, so they often show up there, but it's not a way that you would uh, go through a dispute resolution. Uh, so uh, A and C are definitely uh, not it. Uh, let's look down at the bottom. Uh, how about a lien? A lien is an interesting decision. A lien is something that is used, a mechanics lien it's usually referred to as, as a way to sort of start the dispute resolution process, but it's not how you would get it adjudicated. So a lien is a situation where, just as an example, uh, let's say the owner didn't pay the general contractor uh, and the contractor is owed $100,000. And they keep working for a little while, but then it, they still haven't gotten paid and so there's, something's not right. So they put a lien on the property. And so what that means is that they're saying, look, something's like we're owed money from this owner slash property. And so we're going to claim ownership by saying we're putting a lien on this. It rides with the deed so that anything that's going to happen on that property, uh, any legal thing, try to sell it, try to uh, you know, uh, pay taxes, all of those things, it's, that lien is going to show up on any legal uh, thing that's happening on there. And it's a way to sort of tell the owner in that situation, we're serious, we want to get paid, Don't you can't just ignore this. Uh, so it would start the process, but it's not the way that you would actually adjudicate the dispute. So lien is an interesting possible answer, but it's not really the correct fourth answer. And then we have barrister review and IDM. 
Well, barrister review just means uh, a lawyer review. Uh, so anybody involved in any adjudication process is probably going to have a lawyer involved. Even if you have mediation, you're probably going to have a lawyer involved. Uh, so that just means you're reviewing with your lawyer. So that's not it. So then the only one left here for us is E, and that's the IDM, the initial decision maker, which is such a sort of bogus sounding name. Uh, but it's this kind of interesting thing that was put into the contracts. Uh, it sort of existed before, but then in the 2007 contracts, um, interestingly, the AIA contracts come out every 10 years on the seven. Uh, so in 2017 um, is the next set. But in the 2007 contracts, uh, they very significantly sort of put into place this idea of the initial decision maker and it's typically considered to be the architect. So the idea is this dispute comes up before we really get into mediation or especially into arbitration or litigation, any before everything gets too out of hand and everybody's losing money and the project is stopped dead while we try to figure out what's going on, instead we go to the architect and the architect takes off of their I'm an agent of the owner hat and puts on their IDM hat meaning they're a professional, they're supposed to be able to uh, look out for the health, safety, and welfare of everybody, uh, and they are the initial decision maker. They, they are like a mediator, but just somebody who's uh, part of the process, and now they are able to uh, sort of help adjudicate this process. And it, if the different parties don't like it, then it can jump to mediation or arbitration, but uh, IDM is definitely uh, the fourth of this uh, particular example. Well done with uh, meditation. Yeah. I, <laughs> I think you got some people on that one for sure. <laughs> sorry. Uh, sorry. Also, I apologize. You're also evil. Yeah. Well, and, and actually, <laughs> let me be clear um, that on the actual exam, they won't, they won't do that. They're not going to try to trick you like that. Um, uh, I just, the reason I included it is because I just thought it was funny because yeah you know, meditation would be actually a pretty good way to resolve disputes. Um, but uh, they're, they're not going to try to trick you like that. They will trick you in ways like lean and, uh, you know, the barrister review. These are all things that are part of the dispute resolution process. And so there will be correct answers, but there will be more correct answers. And that's always the trick is, uh, you know, sometimes you see one, you're like, oh, that's it. Right, and then you have to just remind yourself to go and yeah. keep yeah. looking through to find the it's other one. It's one of those ones. exam sort of um, you know techniques is make sure you read everything carefully, like yeah. Jason said in the comments here. And also, one of the questions along the similar lines of are they going to kind of you know um, one question came through for IDM, and then you put in parentheses initial decision maker, so you typed it out. One of the questions was are they going to try to kind of try to maybe be a little tricky and like not write out, out initial decision maker. And my thought is, no, they're no. probably going to be explicit about it. Yeah, the, 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 I would imagine they would be explicit about it. Um, I, I, I got to go back and forth on this. One of the things in, in the sort of previous versions of uh, the exam, um, there's been a lot of discussion about how a lot of the questions were this kind of gotcha type question uh, that, you, you know, was like something you had to know. Uh, and not something that you, you know, but in most situations, architects can look things up. And so you don't necessarily need to be able to, you know, memorize all of these things. Um, so they have tried to move away from that and into situations where it's more about just kind of understanding what the, um, what the ideas are 
and then you can sort of answer these questions. But of course, it still makes a difference if you can remember the different titles. All right, next one. Here's another wordy one. They, they become less wordy as we go along. Uh, number three. Your promotional materials say that you will produce the most beautiful and energy efficient building ever for each and every client. Exclamation point. The standard of care that you bring to the project is, so A, the finest attention to detail will be paid in order to bring the project in on time and under budget. B, the architectural team will attempt to make the most, in quotes, beautiful project for your needs, uh, but will need reasonable and responsible support from the owner to do so. C, the architecture team will perform its services with the professional skill and care ordinarily provided by architects practicing in the same or similar locality under the same or similar circumstances. Or D, shall provide uh, information in a timely manner regarding requirements for and limitations on the project, including written program which shall set forth the objective schedules, constraints, and criteria. So essentially what this is asking is, do you really get what uh, the standard of care actually is? And the standard of care is a contractual understanding. So it's literally listed in the contract. And uh, the, I'm just gonna jump straight to the answer on this one. The answer is C. So those first two, A and B, those are, uh, those are not contractual statements. You can't, in your contracts, say the finest attention to detail will be paid. And like, that doesn't mean anything. It's not something that could be adjudicated like we were just talking about. It's not something that can uh, be controlled in a contractual way. Uh, you can't really have the word beautiful in a contract because like, how would you be able to judge that? It, it just doesn't, it doesn't fit uh, in terms of the contracts. But C, the architect, architecture team will perform its services with the professional skill and care ordinarily provided by architects practicing in the same or a similar locality under the same or similar circumstances. That is the way that, we're, that a contract is put together. The idea is that you are making competent decisions. How do we know they're competent? Because if something goes wrong, people go back and they look at it and they say, well, is this a decision that a regular, competent, reasonable architect doing a similar project in a similar location, would they have made the same kind of decision? So the contracts have to be about uh, things that uh, are about competency and about decision making and about the health, safety and welfare of the public and about the kind of meeting the responsibilities that you have uh, said you would meet in terms of schedule and all of that. So the contracts have a very specific set of language and that's what standard of care is about. Uh, you will absolutely get a standard of care question. Uh, it may not be quite as wordy as this one is, um, but you will absolutely get a standard of care, care question. Uh, you will absolutely get it in the next one, the uh, project uh, management but I also think it's likely to get one in practice management because what it's demonstrating is that difference between your marketing materials and your contractual materials. Uh, you have to be a little careful with your marketing. I actually don't like uh, the idea that you would say in your marketing materials that you could do the most beautiful and most energy efficient. Like 
you're actually promising things you can't, uh, that you can't um, sort of reasonably claim. Uh, so I don't like those as marketing materials, but it would be confusing about, like, I'm not really sure that you could be sued for that. Whereas the standard of care is talking about contractual elements, and that is what you can be sued over. One quick little side note, uh, D, shall provide information in a timely manner regarding requirements. That's actually talking about what the owner brings to the table, not what the architect brings to the table. All right, we're down to 29 folks who are still in the mix with awesome. mock exam answers. All right. Let's see how they see how they do here. Um, and apologies about the, <laughs> the typos and the writings and all that stuff. There's no typos. No, no typos here. All right. Uh, number four. While having a construction team meeting with the client, the GC, the structural engineer, and two of the contractor subs at your office, your dog bites the client, causing them to slip and fall and ruin their MacBook Pro. Beyond having a stern talking to with your dog, you, the architect, should do what? Uh, so this is sort of kind of getting back to the previous question that was saying, you know, would they require you to, to know ENO and GL and some of these other things that I've abbreviated here? And my guess is that they would always actually write it out. Um, but uh, just for our purposes here, thought we'd uh, kind of mix it up a little bit. So potential answer A, consult your ENO insurance policy. ENO uh, is kind of the old school version of saying errors and omissions. Uh, and so that when you're uh, looking at ENO, you're talking about your professional liability. Um, it's very inexpensive insurance, right? <laughs> yeah, professional liability is the expensive insurance that architects uh, have to do. The ENO errors and emissions, um, that's, the, that's the big expensive one. The GL is your general liability. So uh, those are two insurance policies that, policies that the architect gets, and we'll talk about the difference between them in just a second. Uh, C, uh, consult your pro forma documentation. We'll actually talk more about pro forma later, but pro forma doesn't have anything to do with this situation. Uh, it's, a, it's one of those sort of fancy sounding words that you can imagine them throwing into a situation because it does relate to starting a firm, but it doesn't have anything to do with your dog uh, breaking somebody's MacBook Pro. Uh, and then D, consult your landlord for their tenant insurance policy. Uh, trust me, your landlord's insurance is not going to pay out because your dog broke somebody's thing. Like, that's on you. Uh, uh, if it was a situation where they were walking into the office uh, and there was a walkway uh, outside of your tenant space and there was a trip hazard there and they fell there, well then that would be on the landlord because that wouldn't be part of your tenant space and your, it wouldn't be in your sort of meeting yet. Uh, so there are, there, you could imagine a situation where the landlord's insurance would actually get pulled into this. But this is a situation where it's in, in your office and it's solely uh, your cause because it was your dog. Um, so then the question is, uh, which of A or B is the right one to talk to about this? Well, first thing is, 
if I have a choice, I'm always going to choose to have it go to the general liability because uh, that's going to be the cheaper one. I don't want to have, I don't want to start getting a list of uh, things going on underneath my professional liability. I don't really have a choice though. Uh, the professional liability is about your decision making. Like uh, I'm doing a project and we've decided uh, that um, we're going to have two stairwells uh, for this, for a very large scale building. Is that enough stairwells? Can people get out in a fire? Uh, does the code official agree? Did the project get stopped because uh, you, you didn't have enough exit ways? And the reason that you didn't have enough exit ways is because you made a decision that had fewer exits than what was necessary, right? That's a professional liability question. That's the kind of thing that's your decision making. General liability is somebody tripped on your rug or uh, you're driving the business car and there's uh, an accident with something. Like it's all the stuff that you're an architect, but uh, maybe you're a dry cleaner or maybe you're an uh, a lawyer or maybe you're somebody else. Like everybody has general liability insurance. So if it falls under the kind of thinking, like something went wrong, but it could go wrong for anybody, then that's general liability. If it could really only be the architect that the dispute is about, then that's probably the professional liability errors and omissions. Uh, you'll hear both terms, errors and omissions. Most of the time, I think they actually would say the whole thing, errors and omissions, professional liability insurance. Um, but uh, in some places, you'll get referred to as professional liability. Some places will get referred to as errors and omissions. Some places, both terms altogether. Errors and omissions is kind of an old term, like it's kind of the old school term for it. Um, when I, I actually just had to sign a new one the other day, and uh, it didn't even say errors and omissions on it. It uh, only said professional liability. So I, I, think the, I think it's moving towards professional liability, but it's the same thing. Uh, and absolutely have a stern talking to you to your dog because that's ridiculous. Okay. All right, number five. Risk reduction is a concern on a project that seems complicated and difficult. The architect should make sure they have which of the following. So uh, a couple of these are pretty uh, easy and reasonable. Um, I'm going to sort of pick out the easy ones first. Uh, so C regular coordination meetings. This is one of the ones that NCARB is going to like smash home every chance they get. Uh, it's one of the roles of the architect is to make sure that everything is coordinated. Uh, that you're hiring typically uh, the consultants or the engineers, you're, you're the liaison to the owner, uh, you are therefore also the liaison to the general contractor and to all the subs through the general contractor. And if there's risk involved, the risk is typically going to be uh, about coordination issues. There's lots of other potential risks, but certainly coordination is one of the biggest problems that happens on job sites. So uh, you will absolutely get questions about making sure that you are setting up your office in such a way that you are uh, always making sure that there are coordination processes that everybody is following. Uh, so that's going to be uh, a, a big one. A design log 
kind of goes along with that. A design log is every change that happens in a design, you're supposed to keep track of those changes. So you have a system for whatever is going on. Uh, you know, a client calls up and says, uh, you know, I don't like the awning windows, make those casements or something like that. That it doesn't just change on the drawings, you actually keep track of those changes. And the reason that you make a log of that is because somewhere down the road, three months, six months, 12 months down the road, somebody's going to say, well, wait a minute, how, why did we end up with these awning windows when the drawing said, uh, you know, casement windows? And you need to be able to go back and find the moment so that it's clear when those decisions actually were made, right? That's part of reducing everybody's risk. Uh, specifically your risk, but also everybody else's risk. Another one that's sort of an easy one uh, would be A, a quality assurance plan. Now, this is one of those things that uh, is, sounds very good in the uh, NCARB and in the AIA documents. Uh, if you look at the professional uh, practice handbook, there would be a bunch of stuff in there about quality assurance plans. And what that's essentially saying is you should have a process that you go through for projects. So you're uh, you know, going through, you, you get an initial project, you do schematic design, there's a sign-off uh, where the owner agrees to the schematic design, they sign off. Uh, at some point, maybe you have a third-party reviewer. It doesn't have to be an outside of the office, but maybe somebody who's just not involved in those drawings who can kind of look over and make sure that code issues are being picked up and things like that. But the point is that you have a plan for how you produce work. And the quality assurance is always checking, does it still meet the code? Does it still meet the budget? Does it still meet the program? So you have a way to do that. And again, this is talking about practice management. So you're, you're talking about issues that are sort of setting up the future, right? And so a quality assurance plan would absolutely be uh, an example of that. So those are the three really easy ones uh, for, from an NCARB standpoint. And then the fourth one uh, is a little trickier and uh, could go a couple different ways. I'm gonna claim it as a performance bond. Um, and a performance bond means that when this project goes through, uh, everybody's worried about the risk uh, and that the performance bond is gonna be the thing that where there's a surety involved that is gonna say, all right, if the contractor has been chosen uh, that uh, as the project goes through, if for some reason they try to back out, there's an insurance to cover that situation. So if you're worried about the project not going through, uh, that having a performance bond in there would make a big difference in terms of reducing everybody's worry and risk. Uh, that you don't have to stop and then redesign and then do some new thing with a new contractor uh, that's gonna cause a lot more coordination and complication. Uh, so those are the four that I would pick. Bid bond, you could do employee manual is also pretty reasonable, but those are the four that I think are the best out of those six. All right, number six, starting a firm, what sort of financial forms should you create to understand the viability of the endeavor? So we have four different possibilities here. 
A, profit and loss statement, B, pro forma, C, cash flow reports, D, loan agreement. So if we look back and we're kind of trying to figure out what's going on, we're talking about we're starting a firm, so it's not a firm that's already going, and we're looking at the viability of it. So is this a viable idea? So nothing has really happened yet other than thinking about it. So when we look through these, a profit and loss statement, well, P&L is when I have costs that have gone out uh, and I have money having come in. So I'm looking to see, you know, do they match? Do I have enough money to cover the costs that go out and all of that? Uh, so that's only when something is going already. So it's not A. Similar, a cash flow report, uh, C, doesn't make any sense either because a cash flow report is talking about the flow of money. That's like how much cash do we have on hand uh, and how does it relate to uh, the amounts of money that we're going to be paying out as we go along. So the only two possible ones really are B and D, a pro forma and a loan agreement. And kind of interestingly, if you're going to get a loan in order to start a business, you're going to need a pro forma. Now, you may not call it that. Uh, it, you know, it, it can be a, uh, referred to as a spreadsheet or you know, there's any number of ways you might talk about it. But a pro forma is a document that goes through and says, here's what we think the incomes will be. Here's what we think the costs will be. Uh, and so the costs would be, uh, you know, all right, we're going to go for a year. How, long, how much will it cost us to pay our employees? How much will it cost for insurance? How much will it cost for rent? How much will it cost for uh, computers? Uh, you know, you're kind of putting all of the costs out there. And then uh, on the income, you're saying, well, we think we'll be able to get uh, uh, two small projects and three big projects uh, over the span of the year. And we think that those will bring in revenues of X amount, and you can add them all up. And then if you can add up the revenues and they're more than the uh, uh, costs going out, then that's a viable pro forma. That's, you're essentially saying that those numbers will work. Uh, pro forma can be as simple as you know, a few lines on an Excel spreadsheet. It doesn't have to be super complicated. But they can also be you know, much more complicated where you start bringing in loans if you're saying, well, our loan amount, so we're not going to try to cover this year's amount right away. We're going to be able to sort of use this over a span of time. Uh, so they can be quite complicated, but in general, the gist of them is pretty simple. It's just saying, is this a viable enterprise? This is how much money we think we'll have coming in. This is how much money we think we'll have going out. Does, that, does it make sense to start this business? If you're going to get a loan from somebody, they are absolutely going to want to see that document because you can't, uh, you know, if, if you're getting a loan from somebody and they don't believe that you're a viable uh, entity, then they're not going to give you that loan. So this is one of the ways that you would show people that you are uh, actually a viable uh, endeavor. So the answer is going to be B, you're going to do a pro forma. All right. All right, let's see how we're doing. We are we under twenty now, Stephen? Yes. Under twenty. Okay. Here we go. Last couple. Number seven. 
An owner that has a number of strip malls is looking to have an ongoing series of small projects worked on over the next few years as new tenants move in and out. They should probably produce a RFP, RFS, RFQ feasibility study. Well, feasibility study is not a bad thing to, to respond. It's like it's actually a fairly reasonable idea. In this situation, like if you imagine that an owner has just bought a, a series of strip malls and they want to know kind of who they should be marketing to and uh, what kinds of businesses would make sense. Well, you do a feasibility study. That's the kind of thing that would be a, a reasonable thing for them to do. But it doesn't quite match what the question is really about. You might help with a feasibility study, but it, it's not, it doesn't fit to the question. So D is not the answer. So the question really is, is it an RFP, an RFS, or an RFQ? And that's a request for a proposal, a request for services, or a request for qualifications. And an RFP, uh, request for a proposal, that is about when you have a specific situation. So you have an owner, they want to do a project, and they're going to ask uh, to see who's interested in the project and what ideas uh, do they have to bring to the table uh, to make this project uh, exciting and, and you know, viable. Uh, so you are not just saying you know, who's interested, you're actually asking them to provide ideas. But the question is talking about something that's happening over a span of time, multiple tenants moving in and out. Uh, maybe you've got a couple in one year and five in another and none in another and three in another, right? So it's, it's a constantly sort of churning along thing. An RFP is really about a specific situation doesn't really fit to that multiple uh, type uh, situation. So it's really between the RFS and the RFQ. RFQ, the request for, for qualifications, uh, I would actually do an RFQ if I was doing an RFP. Uh, I would just, in, I, would, I would do the same work for the qualifications, uh, but then I would add the proposal part on top of it for an RFP. Well, the same is kind of true with an RFS. An RFQ uh, is saying, are we qualified to do the work? Uh, so it's a way of sort of pre-qualifying people uh, to, so you can kind of weed out a bunch of the potential architects and, and their teams uh, so that a, an owner can uh, sort of focus in on making a decision between just a few. So if I'm doing an RFS that's a big, long RFS, it essentially includes the RFQ in it. And the RFQ would be, yes, we're qualified. Here's the team that we would have working on it. This is how we would uh, uh, sort of do this work. And RFS is going to be the answer. So it's a request for services because it's going to be an ongoing set of work. Uh, so whenever you have those situations where it's more like you're being put on retainer, it's going to be an RFS. I think with that, we squashed everyone. Ha! There you go. Yes. Uh, you know, you'll see it in a few different, different ways. You could actually do it with RFPs and RFQs. Uh, RFQ is probably a better answer than an RFP in that situation, uh, but an RFS would certainly uh, fit that situation where it's this constant flow of work. You're probably doing it hourly. You're not, uh, you're, the whole point here is that they don't want to have separate contracts with every time uh, a, 
you know, a laundromat moves out, uh, they want to be able to just kind of make something happen for the next people to be able to get them in as fast as possible. Okay. All right, number eight. You are unsure about an unusual project proposal. It is not a typical type of project and it is unclear how long developing the plans will take. You should probably propose to the client A, a cost plus fee contract type, B, a stipulated sum, C, design build project delivery, D, a GMP. GMP means guaranteed maximum price. Uh, and uh, GMP is actually not a bad answer if it's associated with a couple of the other answers. But by itself, it doesn't really uh, answer the situation. So this is a situation where there's something is like it's a, a project type that's unusual. There's not a lot of documentation about how it, uh, about how people have done them in the past. Uh, you know, maybe it's uh, something that's uh, new materials, or maybe it's a, a, a type of uh, project where you're including uh, some new sustainability uh, aspect to it, or you're generating power or something like that, that's just sort of unusual and nobody's really 100% sure how to do it. If you use a stipulated sum, that means essentially a lump sum in your contract, well, if, if I said to you uh, that, uh, yeah, here's a project, I really have no idea how long it's going to take us, and you said, well, give me an exact number, well, I'm obviously going to add a whole lot of money into that. I'm going to I'm going to puff it out in order to just cover me for in case it takes the whole time. You know, if I think it'll take 100 hours, but uh, I put in that it's going to take 200 hours, then if it ends up taking 170 hours, like all right, I'm I'm covered, right? Well, that's a terrible idea for the client because uh, that means they're paying this enormous amount of money just because it's a complicated project. So stipulated sum, while in most situations is probably the reasonable way to go, it just doesn't make sense in a situation where there's a lot of, uh, everybody's unsure about it. Uh, design build uh, really isn't, that's a project delivery, that's not part of what we're talking about. Uh, though it could be, but it's not, it's not directly from the question, so it doesn't uh, seem a, a real potential answer. So when it comes down to it, the answer is going to be A, which is a cost plus fee contract type. So what that means is you're essentially saying that we're going to do this hourly and that the hourly construct uh, is what the cost is. So uh, interestingly, this is one of the things that always throws uh, young architects a lot, is you probably think the cost is how much they're paying you, but in fact the cost is a combination of how much they're paying you and then a sort of proration of the insurance, the rent, the uh, vehicle costs, the, all of those other costs that it takes to run the practice. And so you actually have to show all those costs and the timesheets so that the client would actually be able to see that they were getting their money's worth, that they, they were actually paying per hour for hours that have actually been worked. But then the fee is that extra little bit of profit that you're sort of allowed to build on. So 
It's a complicated situation. It's an unusual project. Nobody's sure how long it's going to take. Uh, so therefore, in order to get you to not just pad the number and therefore, if you're able to do it really fast, still charge the client a whole lot of money, uh, instead of doing that, you would choose something like cost plus fee. That's a way that everybody gets paid uh, a sort of reasonable amount, but there's no extra padding because the client sees the actual number of hours that uh, the architect has worked. So the cost would be different. If I have a principal working on it, it's going to be a higher amount per hour than if I have an intern or a, a project architect. Or Everybody would have different hourly amounts. They tend to be about three times the amount of money that you're being paid uh, hourly. Sometimes some areas it might be up to about four times. Um, depends. It's sort of a cultural difference and, and some other issues around the country. Uh, but that cost plus fee is the sort of straight cost plus a built-in profit. Now, it's possible that the client might just balk at that because really they're just going to pay you hourly. Like, you could just keep working on something forever. Uh, and so they might demand that it's cost plus fee, but with a GMP, with a guaranteed maximum price. And so you might, you know, have some limit that you say, all right, we promise that it won't go over this amount, uh, just so that they have the ability to make sure that they, are, uh, they have loans to cover it and all of that. So this is the kind of thing that you start thinking about in these, in these scenarios. You're trying to put together a firm. Well, how do you organize? How do you get paid? What, uh, what's the way this, the, that you're going to get projects? So am I doing RFPs? Am I uh, putting out uh, 10 RFPs on the hope that I'm going to get one for every 10 uh, that I put out or two for every 10 that I put out? Uh, you know, once you start to look at those things, you realize, well, there's a certain amount of hourly time it takes to get those, all that information out in order to get the projects. Once I'm starting to get the projects, I have to figure out, well, what kinds of projects uh, can I charge in what different ways and what makes sense? Uh, clients will be willing to do certain things in certain situations and not in other situations. Uh, like, you know, in a fairly simple, straightforward situation, uh, I'm probably not going to want to pay somebody hourly because I want to have a clear idea of how much money that's going to that's gonna cost. Uh, there's no reason in that situation. So those are the kinds of questions that we're really talking about here is imagine you're sort of trying to figure out how do I get projects? What do I need to do for an office? I have to get insurance. I have to uh, figure out how I'm going to organize the team. I have to have a series of processes that we go through. So we have the quality assurance plans. We've got the uh, you know, design logs. We've got, uh, you know, certain, con we're using AIA contracts. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, that you've sort of set up the process and uh, that's what these kinds of questions are going to be about. It's about sort of making sure that you've gone through and understand the kind of ramifications of all of these different choices. Yeah, so we have a, a bunch of good questions here. Could you do me a favor real quick and go back to question Ooh. five, I think it was? Okay. Uh, is that the one you were looking for, Stephen? Okay, cool. You have everything you need? Okay, cool. How many does that leave us with? Five or seven? Um. In the meantime, if you go back to the to slide eight, 
Um, Karen had a good question. Uh, she said, doesn't cost plus fee refer to the billing by the contractor, not the architect? She thought that the architect fee is referred to as hourly, which would factor in profit and overhead. Yeah, the, it's actually the same terminology can be used for both um, uh, the general contractors and for the architects. Uh, cost plus fee is definitely used for contractors. Uh, hourly is often used for um, uh, architects. The thing about hourly is it doesn't necessarily include a uh, uh, extra um, uh, profit number. It, uh, so it's just covering all the costs. So that means if you're just doing hourly, you have to really make sure that you are in fact covering all of the costs. A cost plus fee is set up to be uh, not only the, the costs, but then there's an acknowledged uh, profit amount, and that could be for either the architect or for the general contractor. Okay, good. And then I think if you go back, I think it was six or five, I'm not entirely sure, the one would include performance bond. Um, yeah, this one. A lot of people, um, I would say Daniel, Peggy, Sarah, I'll ask questions about um, isn't it more typical for a contractor to have performance bond versus architects? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm actually suggesting that that would be for the, the contractor. So yes, you're absolutely right uh, about that. Uh, I, sh I should have made that clearer. Um, that in a situation, what, what I was trying to get at was in a situation where there's confusion and a lot of potential risk and you're trying to reduce the amount of risk, uh, one of the sort of big risky moments is uh, will the contractor actually play out their their contract? Uh, and that if they don't, then there's a huge amount of effort, both mostly for the owner, but it's actually a very risky situation for the architect as well. Uh, because now in your sort of process of coordination, uh, every time you bring in a different new general contractor, there's always going to be confusion about, well, you know, we submitted that information already, but no, you submitted it to the old contractor, not to the new contractor, and it's just sort of bound to be sort of confusion. And so by suggesting to the owner that they should have a performance bond uh, as part of the contract with the contractor, that's a way of sort of helping mitigate your risk. Okay. And then going back to, I believe it was maybe the second or third one, which had IDM uh, in it. There you go, number two. Um, I think Joe asks a good point here. He says, I've never fully understood the IDM concept. Doesn't that put the architect in a conflict of interest to rule against his owner? Yeah, it's a, it's a funny one. I'm totally with you, which is why, um, like, I've... Uh, I have a, a number of very um, officious uh, friends who uh, do, you know, who, who know all the rules about everything and are totally perfect people for the IDM. But in actuality, most of the time, the IDM just feels a little awkward for people. And so I actually don't think it's used as much as the AIA lawyers thought it would be uh, when they put it into the 2007 documents. Uh, the idea, you know, like if you can if you can help people not get to litigation, well, that's huge, right? Because litigation just costs so much and it takes so unbelievably long. 
And even when you get down to even mediation, right? Mediation takes you know months. Like you bring in somebody new, and they have to go through all the you know design logs, and they have to look at all the submittals and the change orders, and they they you know they have to get used to all that information. It's going to take a you know a month or two just to, for them to get up to speed. Well, if it's a construction project, a month or two is you know potentially a, a crazy long time. Uh, so even mediation, which is meant to be the easiest of, of those three, litigation, arbitration, and mediation, even that one is, is potentially you know, tricky and, and takes a long time. And so the idea is, well, let's just have somebody who's already involved, already knows the thing, and they literally just change hats, right? And it, uh, the architect, and it doesn't have to be the architect, it's just that it's assumed to be the architect unless a different person is named. So on the contract, there's actually a little line that says, the IDM assumed to be the architect unless you name somebody else. Uh, and so it could be somebody else, but uh, the, the thought that you have somebody who's already involved is not either the contractor or the owner. Clearly you have more uh, agency and relationship to the owner than you do to the contractor. So it does seem uh, like it's a bit of a problem. But uh, remember, this is that whole idea about being a professional, is that you know, whether it's true or not, you are supposed to be above that, right? That you are supposed to be able to look at it rationally and with a, a sort of jaundiced eye uh, and be able to uh, say, yes, is this, you know, the owner is acting reasonably or the owner is not acting reasonably in this situation. Uh, and that as the initial decision maker, you're sort of helping uh, sort of throw out all the uh, red herrings and really just get to the actual issue. You just said John, John this I and, and red, red herring in one sentence. I have sentence. no idea what you know, yeah. those things are. It's uh, disgusting. So it's, it's a way of, of sort of getting at uh, uh, all of those issues with somebody who's already in the know so that you can do it fast, but I'm totally with you. Uh, I forget the name of who it was, but I'm totally with you. Uh, it is a little weird, and I think that's why it's not done as much as they thought it would be when they originally put it into the contracts. Okay, and then if we go to the, the first question, um, Julie's had a comment here, I believe it was this one. <clears throat> he said, would it be okay if this was offered as a deduct to the project? Now. That, yeah, very good question. I actually meant to say that. I'm glad you asked that question. Um, it's a totally different question if the uh, roofing supplier is saying, hey, I've got a cheaper roofing material. Uh, you might want to consider it. Uh, like, you know, it'll bring down the cost for the overall construction. That's a completely different question. It doesn't include a kickback. Uh, it's just making the project cheaper. You absolutely do that all the time. Maybe not quite that obviously, but uh, you know, on every project, you're going to be talking to the GC, and the GC is talking to their suppliers, and uh, one of the suppliers is going to say, you know, you asked for all of these, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, Kohler uh, plumbing fixtures, but you know, we're we rep uh, American Standard. Uh, and so, you know, we'll just be cheaper if we can do it as an American standard. Can you ask if we can do that, right? That's a completely reasonable thing to do. That's about the budget of the project. That's fine. Everybody wants you to bring the budget of the project down. 
The issue is whether you are secretly getting paid in order to make certain decisions. Awesome. Well, we're going to end it there. I want to thank everybody for, um, for all your questions. They were really good. And I want to thank you, Mike, um, and thanks everyone again who tuned in. Um, if you'd like to attend our next ARE live broadcast, where we're going to be focusing on the second of ARE 5 exams, which is the project management uh, exam, you can visit blackspectacles.com slash podcast to register to attend. And just like today's episode, you have a chance to ask questions and share your answers with Mike uh, for live feedback during the broadcast. And thanks for those. Those are really great questions. Yeah. Uh, to learn more about our ARE exam prep curriculum, you can go to blackspectacles.com where you can try out any of the free um, you know, course videos. And if you, like I said earlier, if you want your boss to pay for your membership, be sure to visit blackspectacles.com slash firms to learn more about our firm memberships for firms of really any size, small, medium, large. They should pay for your black spectacles and for your exams. Yeah, no kidding. And for those of you who are ready to start preparing for the ARE, and if you're already an AIA member, you can use coupon code 32917PMPC to get a 15% discount for the entire duration of your ARE exam prep membership. And then finally, leave a comment below the video to let us know what you think. Share any suggestions you may have. I promise we'll read every word that you write and use them to tune our next episodes. So thanks for watching.